My name is Lisa Igram, and it's a pleasure for me to be here again this morning uh, to continue our series in thinking about Eucharist and how, for our season of Epiphany, Eucharist reveals Christ our King. It's the third week in our series, and we'll be finishing it off next week with Todd. So I grew up watching Martha Stewart. Uh, Martha Stewart was often on in the background or the foreground on Saturday mornings or Sunday afternoons creating beautiful meals, setting beautiful tables, welcoming friends and family for a meal. So she was a model of good hospitality. Now, I also grew up in a really creative family, and so my mom and my grandma, for holidays especially, create beautiful tablescapes. Now, they would always say that their tables were never quite up to Martha Stewart's standards, but I, growing up, always thought that it was a good thing. Hospitality as a tradition or practice is really found in the oldest of the world's literature. But in the ancient Near East, so that would be our Genesis passage today, and in Greco-Roman literature, so our letter from Paul to the Corinthians, the scope and practice and meaning of hospitality was far more extensive than a well-set table or a delicious meal. Hospitality then was actually a process of welcoming a stranger someone who was other or from the outside of one's own family or tribal group. And in the process of providing for their needs, that stranger became a friend. And way back then, that bond of friendship was actually tighter even than family. The story of Abraham here in Genesis 18 is actually shaped and framed with practices of hospitality, and it gives a really good model of what hospitality looked like back then. So here's what it looked like. The beginning, we can see that Abraham, as the host, sees this group of three men. They're strangers. They're standing in the distance. It seems like they're traveling from one place to another. And so when Abraham, as the host, sees those three guests, these three strange travelers, actually, he leaves the entrance of his tent, and he goes out to welcome them. He goes out to them. And then Abraham invites them to stay. He offers them water for their feet to be washed, which would have felt really good to travelers who were walking by feet long distances. He offers a place of rest in the shade under a tree. He invites them to stay for a meal and to be refreshed before they continue on. All of their bodily needs are cared for in this act of hospitality. And it isn't just any meal. It's an expensive meal. It's a costly one. Abraham tells Sarah, take the finest flour that we have to bake some bread. He himself selects the very best calf in his flock to be prepared. He chooses the most expensive things that he has to offer these guests. Now, in other stories of hospitality during this time, and really up all the way even through Homer's Odyssey, if you remember from high school literature class, Odysseus is traveling from place to place, and it's a, story, it's a series of stories on hospitality, good and bad. Well, in these stories, it's not until after the, stranger had, the strangers had rested had eaten their meal, had their physical needs cared for, that attention is then turned to kind of social and emotional needs. And it's not until that point that the host asks, so tell us a little bit about who you are, where you've come from, and where you're headed. Now, in this story, it seems that Abraham knew that these three guests were connected to the Lord his God. And actually, in ancient times, the impetus or the drive behind offering hospitality being offered to any traveling stranger who might need it was the chance that we might end up entertaining angels unaware because in such a way one would please the gods. 
And perhaps they would even find that they were hosting an actual god or deity and receive some kind of blessing. So hospitality then was actually an act of religious piety. And that's what happens here in this story. Abraham's piety precedes a blessing. And that blessing is a piece of news. It's a promise. The Lord promises Abraham and Sarah a son, an heir, something they did not have. Now, in this story, of course, we get a sense that Abraham somehow knew that these three men were connected to the Lord or were the Lord. But again, in the practice of hospitality in the ancient Near East, the identity of this stranger guest was left unknown or unconfirmed until after they had eaten their fine meal. It's a little strange to think of that today. I live alone, and I would never, ever invite a stranger to dine with me. I've watched way too many crime shows for that. But there are a couple of things to remember contextually here. Families and households in this time were large. They included extended family, servants, slaves, friends that had just kind of joined in along the way. And these families were kind of like the smallest political unit in a tribal or nomadic culture. The other thing to remember is that traveling back then was dangerous. Between natural disasters or accidents and bandits or others along the way, this kind of hospitality in in a nomadic tribal culture was a means of survival. And while the meal was a centerpiece of hospitality in these times, that wasn't all. Because after they told their story, and the stories were expected to be really entertaining for the host and for the family, these strangers, now becoming guests, were often asked to stay the night, maybe even a few nights, while they rested for the next stage of their journey. And as these strangers, turned guests, turned friends, finally left, promises were made between the host and the guest that this favor of hospitality would be returned if the host happened to be traveling in their part of the world. Often a ring or some other kind of family token would be exchanged so that each could be identified in the future because this tie that hospitality created would last for generations. So sons and sons' sons could expect to return and receive the same treatment. And after this, the host would send the guests who were now friends off with gifts, and often accompany them, part of their their journey and their destination. If we were to read a little farther in, in Genesis 18, we would see that Abraham does actually escort his guest friends off to their next destination. So this practice of hospitality was all-encompassing. From the moment a host saw the strangers approaching the home, it included a place of rest, a meal, gifts, stories, promises, seeing them into the next stage of their journey. And this kind of hospitality created ties and bonds that were deeper than kinship. It turned someone who was stranger or other outside of one's own group into a friend. The act of hospitality drew the outsider in. It made that outsider an insider. And the host could count on such hospitality being returned The guest friend could count on hospitality being offered again for themselves or for their children. And this kind of hospitality crossed cultures, it crossed religions, and it lasted actually forward for generations. Now by Paul's time, which is about 2,000 years after this story of Abraham, this extensive practice of hospitality had shifted with culture, especially as city-states and larger political units developed. But the idea of hospitality as welcoming the stranger and of drawing that stranger in to become part of the group, that remained. 
Also, the idea of hospitality, of welcoming the stranger or other as a mark of piety, of religious devotion, that also remained. And underneath many of the stories in the Gospels and Acts and letters, we catch hints of hospitality as a practice and as this sign of piety. A couple stories in Acts that kind of show this off. In Acts 10, this is a crucial story for what the gospel ended up meaning. Peter has just received that dream of clean and unclean animals being lowered in a sheet and is told by the Lord God to eat even the unclean animals. At the same time, Cornelius, far away, a Roman centurion, who is also a God-fearer, receives a message from the Lord to go ask Peter to come visit him. And so Peter does. Peter goes to meet Peter, who's a Jew, goes to meet this Roman centurion. And it's here where Peter actually learns a central truth of the gospel, that Jesus' death and resurrection is not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. And so he preaches the gospel to Cornelius, and this Roman, who is other, who is stranger to the Jews, receives the gospel along with his whole household. Cornelius's faith is confirmed to Peter, so Peter is certain that this is true when the Spirit comes down on Cornelius and his whole household. And Peter baptizes this Gentile, drawing the outsider into the family of God, the Roman to be tied together with the Jew through the power of the Spirit. And in a final sign of piety and devotion, Cornelius offers Peter hospitality, asking him to stay for a few days, the Jew and the Roman together as friends in a relationship that turns out to be tighter even than family. This story is repeated in Acts 16. There, it's Paul, who is a Jew, who receives a vision to go to the Greek area of Macedonia. Paul and his friends there meet Lydia, who is a Greek, also a worshiper of God. And Lydia, a Greek, receives Paul's words as true. And Paul, a Jewish Christ follower, baptizes Lydia, a Greek woman, along with her whole household into the faith. And then she says, Paul, if you consider me to be a believer in the Lord, Come and stay at my house. Strangers, outsiders, have become insiders, bound together by the power of the Holy Spirit. Language of hospitality pops up all over scripture. Language of invitation, welcoming, receiving, giving, eating together, staying the night, taking care of each other, sending travelers along their way. And actually, it turns out that Corinth, which is where we've been kind of sitting the last couple of weeks, Corinth is actually known for their practice of hospitality, shows up in some extra-biblical literature in the writings of the church fathers. We've been camping in 1 Corinthians 11, our New Testament reading for today, for our series on Eucharist. And in the past couple of weeks, we've talked about how diverse these gatherings of Corinthian believers were. All over the city, gathers, gatherings of 20, 30, maybe 40 Christ followers who were Jew, Greek, Roman, slave, free, male, female. And we've mentioned that Paul was frustrated with the gatherings because in them they continued cultural practices that reinforced division between groups, between socioeconomic class, between ideology in which teacher they followed. A key piece of Paul's theology is that when we believe in Christ, we become united with Christ in his death, and we also become one with one another. And so for Paul, any practice that caused breach in unity was to be absolutely condemned. Division has no place in these gatherings of Christ followers. 
And so Paul uses really strong words to reorient the Corinthians into what these gatherings are actually to be. And Paul reorients the group through this frame of hospitality, first by reminding the gatherings of who this host is, and second, by evoking this ancient meaning and practice of hospitality. So first, Paul reminds them of a tradition that undergirds their gathering, which happened that night that Jesus was betrayed in our gospel reading for today. And he says, the Lord Jesus, who is our king, he is the host. And as the host, he provided the bread and the wine, giving it to the disciples. And spiritually, this was the best and most costly wine and bread that could have been offered because the bread was his broken body, which was going to be sacrificed that night. And the wine is the blood of the new covenant that Jesus was creating. And the disciples in eating and drinking also received the richest of spiritual blessings from the Lord, the forgiveness of sins. But it wasn't just this. Spiritually speaking, theologically speaking, we were once separate, other, strangers to God because of our sin. And like the father of the prodigal son, God saw us in the distance and ran to greet us. In this highest of all acts of hospitality, the Lord, as host, offers the costliest thing that could be given, his own life, to ensure that we as stranger, the other, and outsider might become friend, a friend that is closer than brother and part of the household of God. The practice of hospitality with its deep and ancient roots becomes here a beautiful metaphor for our salvation. And after reminding the Corinthians who the host is, he reminds them of what this now means. Going down to verse 33, Paul says to the Corinthians, when you come together to eat as one group, wait for one another. And it's here that he invokes that language of hospitality. That word wait is a term used in the practice of hospitality. It can also be translated as receive each other. It's a term that helps describe the process of bringing the outsider in as guest friend, as kin, and as family. Jesus is the host, says Paul, not the wealthy one who owns this home that you happen to be meeting in. And your connection to Jesus as the host, and subsequently your connection with each other, is far stronger than your connection to those in your socioeconomic class or political or ideological grouping. You are family, says Paul. Receive each other as such. In our practice of Eucharist on Sunday mornings, we get to reenact this story, this metaphor, this practice of hospitality, and it's a fully embodied experience. We get to watch the costly gold and silver table setting laid out. Someone has taken time to make our bread each weekend. We are reminded in the words of institution that Jesus is the host of this meal. We take part in giving and receiving the bread and the wine. We watch those who happen to be giving each week also receive from one another. We are received as friends of God. We give and we receive as the family of God. Once we were strangers, we were outsiders. But because of the costliness of this meal, we have been brought inside. We are friends, we are family of God and of each other.
as we settle into our customary time of reflection, I'd like to invite you to sit back and just consider this truth more deeply. That once we were strangers and outsiders, but now we have been brought near. We belong to God and to each other. Take this moment to rest in whatever the Spirit brings to your mind and to your heart in these truths.